Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. It's a great day to travel and leave positive footprints. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're going to take you places where no one else does. If you're joining us for the first time, thank you and welcome to our world of socially conscious and responsible travel. Ian? Dear, today's World Footprints will take listeners on a journey that follows the North Star. First, many Americans are familiar with the slave revolts led by John Brown and Nat Turner. But the story of the greatest act of slave resistance in American history took place in 1811 and has remained largely untold until now. Daniel Rasmussen, the acclaimed author of American Uprising, the untold story of America's largest slave revolt, pulls back the curtain on New Orleans and American history, and he joins World Footprints to discuss his research and give a glimpse into the history of Southern slavery and America's path to the Civil War. Then Bradley Miles, Executive Director and CEO of Polaris Project, named after the North Star that guided slaves towards freedom along the Underground Railroad, joins us to talk about the Polaris Project which provides a comprehensive approach to combating human trafficking and modern-day slavery. Polaris Project runs the National Human Trafficking Hotline in order to combat human trafficking. Finally, sailing chef Victoria Allman comes ashore to offer a first-hand account of her journey as a yacht chef with her husband Patrick on his first assignment as captain in her book Seasoned, a chef's journey with her captain. From their comical adventures with their inexperienced crew, dysfunctional passengers and great mouth-watering recipes, Season offers a great adventure and cookbook. We welcome your comments at any time about anything we're doing. Email us at comments at worldfootprints.com. And certainly, we welcome your company on our social networks from Facebook, Twitter, and others. And of course, through our newsletter, all which you can sign up for on our website, worldfootprints.com. Many Americans are familiar with the slave revolts led by John Brown and Nat Turner, but the story of the greatest act of slave resistance in American history took place in 1811 and has remained largely untold until now. Author Daniel Rasmussen has pulled back the curtain on a long-neglected period in New Orleans and his new book, American Uprising, the untold story of America's largest slave revolt, offers new history into the rise of slavery in the South and the nation's path to civil war. Dan, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This narrative began as a research project for you when you were at Harvard University. What was it about the topic that captured your attention? You know, when I first started uh, digging in, uh, I was really amazed, first of all, by how covered up this had been. And I sort of, I, you know, started working as an investigative journalist early on, and I uh, fell in love with the sort of stories that sort of dig up things that people are trying to hide. And so my first instinct when I came upon this and seeing how little was written about it, uh, how consciously people were trying to cover it up back in the early 19th century, that got me going. Uh, but then what really hooked me was to see this as a story of men who were fighting uh, and willing to fight and die for freedom uh, and liberty and that sort of heroism, you know, especially, you know, a 24-year-old guy, uh, that sort of story really appealed to me. You say that the 1811 slave revolt that took place in New Orleans is the largest one in American history. Why has this story remained untold for so long? You know, well, right after the revolt, 
uh, first of all, the planters and the federal military uh, killed a hundred slaves and put their heads on pikes. Um, and so that was the first act of suppression. But they, what followed was an act of narrative suppression. Uh, in letters and newspaper accounts, uh, they described this revolt as not as a revolt, but as a riot led by a quote-unquote horde of brigands. So basically describing the slave rebels as criminals, stripping them of any political intent, saying that the event was trivial, insignificant, and easily suppressed, uh, and, and reporting that back to Washington. Because Louisiana is sort of on the periphery of uh, America at this point, it's not even a state, uh, and it's surrounded by Spanish territory, uh, there's sort of less attention paid. Uh, so it's really a combination of the conscious efforts to cover it up by the planters and the American government, uh, as well as sort of the reality that Louisiana is just not uh, as much of a center of attention at this point. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about the disparity between the reality and, and the myths that have been generated and, and, and some of your research methodologies, because I can imagine uh, if this was actively uh, covered up, and uh, your research would have had to have been very, very challenging. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so when I first started, I read the newspaper accounts and the letters, and I asked myself, did this even happen? Uh, because they were that dismissive of this event. Uh, and so I had to dig to the next level of sources, which were uh, military correspondence, uh, diplomatic correspondence from French and Spanish emissaries, uh, and from the American uh, Navy and federal military. Uh, and then the planters' own financial records, uh, their statements of account, uh, their ledger books. And what I did was I built up databases uh, in Excel because the best uh, tools uh, to understand, you know, financial data, and this was essentially financial data, is, you know, Excel. Uh, and so once I had these databases, which basically had the name, uh, every piece of information I had about each individual slave, I mapped those databases onto old land maps. Uh, and then use uh, Google Maps to say, well, if I know from the military correspondence that X event happened at 9 a.m., then using Google Maps can say it would have taken three hours to get there from this other location. Uh, and so built up first, you know, a spatial understanding of where things happened by using these land ma old land maps, uh, and then a chronological understanding, uh, and then finally sort of weaving that together into a narrative. So it was really very challenging work took me months, and it, it really required, uh, you know, being innovative about the way you approach history and sort of being a detective and building this legal case uh, using uh, very fragmentary evidence. Mm -hmm. That appeals to me as, as, as an attorney, Dan, Bob, I must say. But I, I'm just very cu curious, why the cover-up? Why go to such lengths to cover up this event? Well, there are a couple of reasons. I mean, I think the, the first the overwhelming reason uh, is simply that the idea of armed slaves uh, dressed in military uniform, flying flags, beating drums, standing up and saying we're, we're free, and not only are we free, we have a real political vision, uh, is a fundamental challenge to the ideology of plantation slavery, uh, which is that slaves are not people, uh, they're animals, uh, you know, or as close as you can get to animals, and that they are not entitled to, nor are they capable of, uh, political thinking. Uh, and thus are suited to their role as slaves. Uh, and so the first reason that this was suppressed was simply that they didn't want this story getting out to other slaves. And the planters themselves didn't want to recognize the essential truth of what they were doing, which was uh, you know, suppressing this political activity, suppressing uh, the inherent humanity of the slaves. Uh, the second reason uh, is that Louisiana is up for statehood at, the, at this very moment in Congress. 
Uh, and William Claiborne, the American governor, is very keen on preventing uh, the atrocities that were committed, the hundred heads on pikes, mm-hmm. uh, as well as just the reality of the instability of New Orleans from getting back and reports to Washington. So he's very careful about that. Uh, and then, you know, I think uh, finally, um, you know, you just do have the natural circumstance of Louisiana, Louisiana being on the fringe, uh, but also there's no sort of reaction. So a- after Nat Turner, one of the reasons we know a lot about Nat Turner or John Brown is they p- provoke serious political discussions afterwards. Whereas in Louisiana, after this revolt, the only thing that happens is that the planters call for increased American military presence. There's no reconsideration of whether slavery is right or wrong. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, sort of internal deep questioning. All they do is say, this is just another reason why we need more military support uh, to protect us, to protect the interests of slavery. Uh, and, of course, that increased militarization is one of the reasons that Louisiana is so well prepared to fight the War of 1812 against the British. Mm-hmm. Dan, we have a question from a listener, Lonnie from Lansing, Michigan, says that he saw you on C-SPAN, and you talked about the African connection with the Igbo tribe. Can you elaborate more about that connection and on the militarization of the revolt, which you started to touch on? Absolutely. Uh, thanks, Lonnie, for that question. Uh, so I think we often think about uh, slaves as sort of homogenous, of being all, you know, all of one race, all of one ethnicity, but that's not true. And there's nowhere that this is li- less true than New Orleans, which is a totally multi-ethnic slave population. Uh, you have Congolese slaves, you have Ashanti slaves, Haitian slaves, slaves born in Louisiana, men born in Virginia, Kentucky, all coming together into this sort of melting pot, which is uh, the planta- slave plantations outside of New Orleans. Uh, and so the leadership of this revolt actually crosses several ethnic lines. So there are really four most prominent leaders, one of whom born in Louisiana, one of whom is born in Virginia, and two of whom are Ashanti. Uh, the Ashanti kingdom is this warlike empire in West Africa that, you know, in the late uh, 18th century, early 19th century, was pushing towards the coast, a sort of uh, grand uh, imperial struggle. Uh, there's also, you know, uh, tactical connections to, uh, you know, their, their, their Congolese slaves. Many of these men would have been trained from birth to be warriors. Uh, so you see a level of African military tactics being employed here. Uh, you know, very familiar. It's guerrilla warfare. Um, the idea is not to face your enemy into open battle, but rather to lure them out from their centers of power, to harass them, to wear them down. Uh, and so you have this, uh, you know, multi-ethnic coalition coming together, employing African military tactics. Uh, but ultimately, I think they're also uh, inspired very much by uh, European military tactics and by the Haitian Revolution, right? They're putting on militia uniforms, their masters' old militia uniforms, and they're consciously evoking uh, that symbolism uh, to remind them and their other uh, other slaves uh, about Haiti uh, and about uh, the recent revolution that's uh, taken place there. Uh, Dan, you um, your book also touches on the this revolt, the 1811 slave revolt, and its significance to the Civil War. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that correlation. Absolutely. You know, I think the Civil War, ultimately the reason the southern states secede, uh, is out of a fear uh, that the federal government uh, will no longer protect the institution of slavery. And they, they will no longer protect the institution of slavery against their own slaves, right? Who is the threat in this situation? Who do the southern states, why do the southern states need federal protection? They need federal protection to prevent slave revolts. And if you look at the ordinances of secession, uh, and the various states' rationales for why they secede. They cite over and over again the idea of, quote, 
excuse me, quote-unquote domestic insurrection, which is the idea that their own slave populations will rise up against them and kill them. Uh, and John Brown's raid is really sort of the, 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 the big spark for that. But you have to think about the South, I think, as a, as a militarized uh, area uh, with a captive population uh, that is, uh, has as its greatest fear uh, this sort of constant paranoia about slave revolt. Uh, and Louisiana, because this is the largest uh, slave uprising, and it, it has such a significant role in sort of shaping, I think, the psyche of the city, uh, I think is an excellent example of just what they were afraid of uh, and the ways in which um, slave revolts and political activity among their slaves uh, in shapes uh, the politics of the South. Uh, and you can see it here in New Orleans with uh, the way in which this revolt drives the French and Spanish planters into the arms of the American government, uh, solidifies American control, uh, and then uh, fosters the militarization uh, and arming of this area. I'm just curious, it, it, during the course of your research, I, I'm assuming you, you did travel to, to New Orleans um, and go through archival materials. What was your impression of the the area at the time during your during the course of your uh, your research did you did you sense a greater change and I ask because Ian and I travel down there quite frequently it's uh, one of our, our our favorite places and we we today see it as kind of a cultural gumbo um, I'm just curious what what your impression was and if we're kind of looking at things through rosy colored glasses no, I think that's very true. I think New Orleans has a lot of Caribbean influences. Uh, I think that you can still feel uh, that sort of multi-ethnicity, this sort of confluence of cultures. Uh, but I think to imagine it back then uh, and to read the descriptions of what the port of New Orleans was like then and to see it not as it is now, uh, you know, I think New Orleans is, you know, is sort of less the center of attention then. But New Orleans then is, you know, the richest city in the South perhaps the richest city in America, uh, is the uh, northern edge of this Caribbean culture. Uh, we are constantly having ships coming in from Haiti, from Cuba, from Brazil, from Africa, from England, uh, from Charleston, uh, you know, coming into the ports, you know, 40 different languages being spoken uh, there, uh, right, you know, in the harbor. Uh, and I think that, uh, even though that, that, I think that culture persists, today, I think it was much, much stronger back then, you know, and I think you could really feel it when you read travelers' accounts, uh, you know, of northerners that travel down there. They're just amazed by just how foreign, how exotic, how different uh, New Orleans feels. Mm -hmm. Dan, even though we talk about slavery, the peculiar institution in America's development, we're now 150, almost 200 years since a large-scale slavery in the United States. And I'm curious, from your perspective as an academic, the lessons, the important lessons in society building, in economics, politics, that came out of this very dark period in American history. Are there lessons today as uh, we look at the world and even as we look at our country uh, stand uh, strong in your mind as we think about who we are as people today and some of the challenges that we face in this world? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fascinating question, one I've thought a lot about. I mean, I think the, the first thing when, when I sort of think about this period is I think it's, it's, it's important to consider that slavery uh, is the foundation of the American economy. Uh, it really is. Cotton, for example, 
is the number one uh, and the majority of U.S. exports from 1800 to 1930. Uh, it, in the antebellum period, these southern cities, Charleston, New Orleans, were much wealthier uh, than northern cities. And the northern cities were in most ways dependent upon southern agriculture, whether it is uh, for you know, textile mill production that springs up uh, in New England or whether it's the shipping and uh, merchant banking that uh, emerges in, in, in New York and Boston. Uh, and that's largely dependent on southern cotton and southern sugar. And that, in turn, is dependent upon slavery. Uh, so for me, I think it raises a lot of questions about you know, economic growth here uh, in the United States being based upon slavery. Uh, and I think a bil- man's ability to rationalize uh, and make uh, you know, what was really a horrific and immoral institution uh, seem palatable because it had such material benefits to this country uh, in terms of our economic growth, in terms of fueling American expansion and American power. Uh, and so for me, I think it, it, it sort of raises questions about you know, how we think about our past and, 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 and I think pushing us to look at places that I think make us uncomfortable. Uh, but I think there's another lesson which I think was really important to draw uh, from this story, uh, which is, I think, that, that we can see the slaves not as victims, uh, that not to see slavery as the sign that we should feel guilty, ashamed, dark about, uh, but rather uh, that we should celebrate the accomplishments of the enslaved, that these men and women, not only were they fueling American economic, uh, economic growth, uh, but they were also uh, resisting uh, and fighting for freedom and liberty, uh, and dying for it, and these heroes who, who, who die in the cane fields of 1811, uh, whose actions I think stand as a testament to the best American ideals uh, of freedom, liberty, and equality, uh, and yet who are beheaded uh, because of their beliefs uh, in those actions. And I think that if we can feel proud about their accomplishments uh, and celebrate those accomplishments, I think hopefully we can uh, move towards a, a better understanding of who we are as people. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's a great uh, takeaway, Dan, um, for your book as well. What, uh, is there a follow-up? Are you in the process of doing a follow-up book uh, to American U- Uprising? Because you, you take us into current day, but I, am, I can imagine there are a lot of stories within the story of American Uprising. You know, there are, and, 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 and what, what I'm doing now is I've been so narrowly focused on this topic for so long, uh, just trying to drill it out and figure it out and make sense of it, and now I'm sort of trying to pull back and read much more broadly uh, to sort of get a sense of where I want to go next, but I don't have a definite conclusion yet about what I want to write about next. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we, we thank you for, uh, for sharing true history. Um, with us and and certainly for taking the time with us today on World Footprints. Uh, Daniel Rasmussen, the author of American Uprising, the untold story of America's largest slave revolt. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. After the break, we'll learn how the Polaris Project fights human trafficking and 21st century slavery from its CEO, Bradley Miles. There, I mean, when people hear about the issue, they think, you know, India, Thailand, Cambodia, you know, whatever else. And Polaris, mostly our, our main offices are in the United States and in Japan. And so uh, we're working in, you know, developed, industrialized democracies. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hey! This is Amy. I'm from Manitoba. Woo, Manitoba. I love listening to Wolf Footprints Radio. It rocks my socks. 
Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel, for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy Jr., actress Stephanie Powers, and director Ken Burns, along with other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy initiatives. Travel with us to unique places around the world and join us on our efforts to raise awareness about environmental, conservation, and human rights issues, and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Also, visit our interactive and informative website at worldfootprints.com. For the latest and last-minute travel deals, visit the worldfootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners. You can't find these deals anywhere else, and we've seen sales for $9 per night for hotels and $49 airline tickets. So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Hi, my name is Jeannie. I am from Fiji. I love listening to World Footprints Radio. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Named after the North Star that guided slaves toward freedom along the Underground Railroad, Polaris Project has been providing a comprehensive approach to combating human trafficking and modern-day slavery since 2002. Bradley Miles currently serves as Polaris Project's Executive Director and CEO. He joins us today to talk about the comprehensive services and programs, including the National Human Trafficking Hotline that Polaris has created in order to combat human trafficking. Bradley, welcome. How are you guys doing? We're doing fine. (laughs) Your website states that there are more individuals in slavery today than there were at the height of the transatlantic slavery trade. I'm sure it's shocking to some to consider that human trafficking is a modern-day form of slavery. That's a pretty bold and provocative statement. Talk about that. Sure. So there's been some research on the issue globally. Uh, There was a study that came out of the International Labor Organization that looked all around the world at how many people were held in forced labor or slavery situations. There is also uh, a a researcher named Kevin Bales with the organization called Free the Slaves, and he did some global research, and another researcher named Siddharth Kara. And the the International Labor Organization study estimated around 12 million people held in the issue, uh, held in slavery globally. Kevin Bales' number put it much higher at 27 million, and Siddharth Kara's number was even a bit higher. So when you look at those numbers, ranging 12 million to 27 million, 
and that's a global prevalence estimate, and then you compare that number to some of the historical numbers, that's where the conclusion's been reached that there's more people today uh, in the slave trade than, than there were historically. Now, sometimes the terms human trafficking and human smuggling are confused for the same crime. Talk about the differences between these two offenses. Sure. Now, there's definitely, there has been some confusion. I think it's really important to clear it up. So, so if you think about the issue of smuggling, smuggling is primarily a, a, a crime that occurs against a country's borders where you're smuggling people into that country. It's a, it's a crime that involves transportation, and uh, the person often consents to be smuggled. And then once the person is in that country, that's usually when the relationship ends and, and the person goes on and, and does whatever they will do. Human trafficking, in, in comparison, first of all, it's a crime against an individual, not against the country's borders. Secondly, it's a crime that doesn't necessarily need to require movement. It focuses much more on the force and the coercion and the exploitation of forcing someone into the sex trade or into some sort of labor trade. So it's, it's not really a crime about movement. It's a crime about exploitation and coercion. And then also, when smuggling, you, you hear kind of the relationship ends at the border, with trafficking, it's a much more ongoing relationship where the, where the victim is being constantly controlled. So the, the, there's, there's sometimes a link. Maybe a victim is smuggled and then becomes trafficked. So sometimes there's a link. But really, I think it's important to realize these are two very different phenomena. Mm -hmm. uh, Bradley, we've recently partnered with the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking um, as a media company, one that appeals or, or uh, broadcasts to the travel community. There's a lot that we know that, that can be done um, with the tra from the traveling community to help fight this. And so we also know that there's a lot of initiatives on the international stage. But what's being done on the national stage at a national level to fight this crime? Sure. Well, the, the United States, there's a very robust human trafficking response growing here in, nationally in the United States. There's so many different initiatives going on uh, within the government. You have a very high amount of political will on this issue right now. Multiple different secretaries, Secretary Clinton, Secretary Napolitano, Attorney General Eric Holder, Secretary Hilda Solis, Secretary Sebelius. There's, there's, there was recently a president's interagency task force called the PITF meeting where these different secretaries met and, and talked about new initiatives that they're going to be rolling out to fight trafficking. Uh, you see new law enforcement initiatives getting created. There's about 38 human trafficking task forces all across the country, and there's also 38 innocence loss task forces that focus on child sex trafficking. Hmm. So you have this whole infrastructure of task forces being built. There's, there's a victim service infrastructure that exists in the United States with federal grants and, and uh, state and local grants where nonprofits are being given the support to help victims. There's this national hotline that, that has existed and, and is now really growing where Polaris operates this national hotline for the country. We're seeing uh, different groups like the National District Attorneys Association being to, beginning to take up the issue, the National Conference of State Legislatures. So all the 50 state legislatures across the country are taking up the issue. So 
I think we're really seeing a systemic response growing. There's so many different national initiatives that are happening in the United States. That that's fantastic, and I love the attention that uh, media has has been giving this issue as well. And I think part of the educational process is, um, you know, we need to to dispel some myths. And so I want to uh, to list a few uh, of the commonly held myths out there and have you respond to to them. And uh, the first one is human trafficking is only a third world problem. Sure. I mean, I, I think that that is a big myth out there. I mean, when people hear about the issue, they think, you know, India, Thailand, Cambodia, you know, whatever else. And Polaris, mostly our, our main offices are in the United States and in Japan. And so uh, we're working in, you know, developed industrialized democracies um, and, and, you know, two of the biggest economies in the world. And we're seeing this issue uh, much larger than people realize. I mean, we, we've learned about thousands of victims through the national hotline, and our client service programs in D.C. and New Jersey are flooded with victims who need services. And so I think we're just beginning to barely scratch the surface of how big this issue is in the U.S. and Japan and other, uh, you know, what some would call developed countries in, in the U.K. And, and, and other places. So mm-hmm. I think that's definitely a mess. And, and another myth is that victims come only from low-income and impoverished areas. Yeah, I, I think that it's, it's important to realize that, that when you have a crime that focuses on preying on people's vulnerability, uh, that whatever the factors that create vulnerability in someone's life can be risk factors for trafficking. So, for example, in the U.S., we have lots of runaway and homeless youth who get targeted by sex traffickers to be recruited into the sex trade. And not all of those victims are coming from impoverished or, or low-income backgrounds. I think certainly some of them are. But And so I think, you know, coming from a low-income background and, and coming from an area of poverty, to the extent that that creates a level of vulnerability, could be something, but definitely not the only factors and not the only determinants. Bradley, you mentioned the sex trade, but that's not the only area where human trafficking occurs. Sure. Uh, the definition of trafficking, as defined internationally and also as defined in the United States, includes people who are coerced into the sex trade, but it also includes people who are coerced into what the law calls labor or services. So this might involve nannies held in a home. It might involve farm workers who are forced to work against their will, factory workers, folks in restaurants, folks in you know industrial cleaning companies, hotel housekeeping. So there, there's a whole, there's a whole world of, of labor trafficking where people aren't engaging in the sex trade. They're in, in this world of labor or services that is, that is much larger than I think people realize and, and needs much more attention, frankly. You've touched on the sex trade. You've touched on servitude. But human trafficking occurs in legitimate businesses, just as you touched on in some legitimate services. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, this isn't only an underground crime, and it's not only a crime that occurs in underground cash-based networks, although there is some of that. Uh, But we've seen major human trafficking cases uh, recently in the United States that involve, you know, farm workers working in very legitimate businesses where you had some sort of labor broker who was recruiting the workers and, and, and kind of supplying them as a labor supply to that legitimate business. 
and the labor broker itself claimed to be a legitimate business, but that's where the trafficking was happening. So definitely happening within legitimate businesses. On the sex side, you have these massage parlors that, that open up as claiming to be a legitimate massage parlor. They register as a legitimate business. They advertise as a legitimate business. But then that whole legitimate business was a big front. And behind the scenes, they were operating it as a brothel. And we've seen a number of those massage parlors to be sex trafficking situations. So I, I, don't, I think it would be a mistake to think that only look for trafficking in these underground economies. Definitely not the case. Look for trafficking anywhere. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to talk about some of the red flags. You know, as as, as I mentioned, we uh, we have partnered with organizations to help raise awareness, and uh, we want to encourage our listening audience, which includes everybody, including the travel community, uh, about this issue. So, talk to me about some of the um, talk to us about some of the <clears throat> common red flags that people should be aware of that should look for. Sure. I, well, I think, the, I think the first thing that people, especially in the travel community, should look for is to trust your gut instincts. And if your gut instincts are, are triggering and you, you look at a situation and say, something looks wrong there, uh, more often than not, people, people are right and, and people have good instincts for that. Some of the red flags we've seen, you know, someone that, that looks like a child who's in the sex trade is a, is a key red flag. Another one is people who are exhibiting extremely fearful or anxious behavior where they, they look like there's something very upsetting to them happening. Another red flag is someone who doesn't know where they are, and they're saying, you know, what city am I in, or, you know, where am I being brought? And it, it's clear that they're not really um, in control of their own transportation. Another one is when you try to talk to someone in a one-on-one conversation, and someone steps in and won't let you talk to the person directly, and they say, no, you communicate with them through me. And mm. so you have to talk to this third-party controller, and you're like, well, why can't I talk to this person directly? Why can't she answer for herself? So those are red flags. I, I think that uh, people who, who uh, don't have control of their own uh, paperwork or their own immigration paperwork, and they say someone else is holding it for me, there's a red flag too. So I, I think, you know, use your common sense, but understand these key red flags. Our website has a whole list of them. Um, and, and I think that's the way to identify more of these cases of community members and travelers seeing it. Bradley, the Polaris Project runs the National Human Trafficking Resource Center hotline. Talk to us about how the hotline should be used for reporting and, and seeking help. Sure. So this is a hotline. It's a great idea, I think. Uh, the Department of Health and Human Services a couple years ago came up with the idea and said, you know, we need a single national hotline for, you know, all the cases of trafficking that are being discovered all over the country. We need a single place that's a repository for all of that. Um, so it, it functions as a crisis line where sometimes victims are calling in in crisis. That's about 5% of our calls. Uh, it also functions as an information and referral line where people are calling in to get more information and to get referrals. And it also functions as a tip line where people are calling in with tips and saying, I saw this or someone told me this. So it's a really comprehensive resource center We've seen the call volume explode over the past couple of years, a 400% increase in calls. And uh, Polaris has been doing this national hotline since December 2007, so uh, the past uh, three and a half years. 
and uh, we really have have we've, we've taken over 28,000 calls and learned learned about over 4,000 potential victims. So it's a really great resource center. Uh, it's toll free, 24 hours a day. It could take calls in up to 170 languages. And I think it's a, it's a really uh, amazing resource for the field and for community members to call and use it. What's the number? So the number is one eight 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 three seven three seven eight eight eight. And is there a website where people can go to learn more about the Polaris Project? Definitely. Uh, we just launched our new website. We're proud to announce uh, it's, it's www.polarisproject.org. And we have lots of resources there on the site, lots of training resources, lists of red flags of trafficking, definitions of trafficking. Uh, we have a state map that shows the different laws that are out there and, and new laws that are getting introduced to fight trafficking. And we show some of our hotline call statistics on our, on our website. You can see if your state uh, is one of the more active states. So I think it's a great new site, definitely a great resource for the field. And again, those numbers are one triple eight three seven three seven eight 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 and polarisproject.org. Which yeah. in both will be listed on our website, uh, this show page, and, and your guest page, Bradley, for, uh, for the benefit of our listeners. Wonderful. Really appreciate that. Bradley Miles, the director and CEO of the Polaris Project, we thank you for being with us today on World Footprints Radio. Thank you so much. Up next, seasoned chef Victoria Allman shares tales of adventure and hope cuisine on the high seas. I love animals, too, and through this whole experience, what had happened is uh, guests came on board with a smaller dog who actually, come mealtime, would sit at the table, not Sorry, not at the table, on the table. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, my name is Eva. I'm from Fiji, and I love listening to World Footprints Radio. Want to travel for less? Visit the worldfootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive, non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners, and you can't find these deals anywhere else. We've seen sales for as little as $9 a night for hotel rooms and $49 airline tickets. So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services like passport processing. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints. World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives. Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Hi, my name is Elaine, and I'm from California, and I like World Footprints Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. 
Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Many people have wondered what it's like to live on a super yacht that cruises the ocean in docks and exotic ports around the world. Our next guest, Victoria Allman, tells all in her new book, Seasoned, A Chef's Journey with Her Captain. Victoria gives a first-hand account of her journey as a yacht chef with her husband, Patrick, on his first assignment as captain. Season showcases Victoria and Patrick's challenges and comical adventures with their inexperienced crew members, the uh, anorexic diva and her mafia-like husband, and the randy wife of another passenger who is bored with marriage and seeking a diversion. Throw in a violent storm, rapidly flooding engine room, and great mouth-watering recipes, and you have a great adventure and cookbook combination. Victoria, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me, Tonya. <laughs> now, the, the characters in your book are real people. This isn't a <laughs> fictional book. How did, how did you and Patrick come to work for and with a, such a motley crew? <laughs> well, when you wrap it up like that in one paragraph, it really seems like this is a crazy life. And it is. It, we work on a yacht uh, that is rented out to different guests. And so throughout the year... And we've been doing this for 12 years. So throughout the last 12 years, we've had this both amazing and crazy group of people come through. And because we work so closely with people, we are, I'm the chef, Patrick's the captain. We have a stewardess who's cleaning up after people, who's serving people. We have deckhands who are out making sure the guests are having fun, putting them on jet skis. We're really close with the guests on board. And so you get to see all these intricacies and all the crazy things that happen <laughs> to a group of people in a small, confined space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the, um, in, in your book, Seasoned, uh, something that struck me was, you know, as chef, you actually carry a very heavy burden of having to take care of not only the nutritional needs of the crew, but, but also certainly the, the clients, um, but the, it it appears that the crew proved a bit more challenging at first. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that. Well, the funny thing is, is that I am responsible for everything in terms of we are cruising around uh, the ocean, obviously, and it's not like if someone doesn't like uh, the chicken I serve tonight that they can run out and grab a pizza. I, I cook 365 meals a year for our crew, and my my nutritional responsibility is to those guys. If they, if they end up with high cholesterol, it's because of the food that I've cooked. If they end up not having enough fruit in their diet, it's because I've done that. And so I, have, I really try to make sure not only they're getting things that they like to eat, but things that are nutritious and good for them. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, one of the one of your crew members. Um, actually helped name a chapter <laughs> in your book, the Better Than Sex uh, chapter. Uh, and in act- my understanding is she ate uh, this, this lovely dessert that you made at her own expense because she's <laughs> lactose intolerant. Is that true? Everybody comes to the table with their own likes and dislikes. And I try to m- make sure everybody gets things that they enjoy eating, but there's also dietary restrictions, uh, allergies, uh, and such. And so one crew member that I detail in uh, chapter and season was dairy intolerant. And so for months, 
I was cooking, if I used cheese, I'd use soy cheese for her, or I would make sure I had almond milk. And I was doing different things. But the day that I was cooking cheesecake, there's only so many substitutions you can make and still make something taste good. And cheesecake, I, I hate to say, I was not up to the challenge of making a good-tasting <laughs> vegan cheesecake. And so when I put down her soy uh, product in front of her that had this gray tinge to it and looked very soggy, sitting next to this fluffy white cheesecake full of fat, <laughs> full of cream <laughs> cheesecake, she took one look at her hockey puck of a soy product and said no <laughs> and so she devoured her real piece of cheesecake to much pain the next day but declared that it was well worth the pain <laughs> in 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 other words better than sex and i'll just yeah. share with our audience <laughs> you do have the recipe i mean you know the thing that i love about your book is you know you not only detail your adventures your uh, all, all the, the the great stories, but uh, each chapter has a wonderful recipe from you know mm. whatever region your um, has influenced that you know that particular um, uh, chapter. So the it's better the best the- part about being a yacht chef, and in, in terms of I have, we travel, I've traveled to forty five different countries on this boat, and. Every time we pull into a new place, I have to go to the market and I have to procure food. And so the very first thing I do, no matter what language it's in, is ask the market people, what do you do with that? How do you cook it? What would you make for your husband, for your kids? And so I'm learning so much more about cooking than I ever did in chef school from people in the market, from local people in each country. Mm-hmm. And so when we're in Italy, I go and I, I talk to the man behind the market and say, what do you do with this? And he gives me his recipe. Mm-hmm. And so all the recipes in the book, they're not mine. I, I don't want to take credit for them at all. They are somebody has taught me this is the way they do them in these places. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this is, um, this is a, you're, you're providing an immersion experience um, for your clients and, and certainly the crew, mm-hmm. perhaps without them knowing, because there is a very strong correlation in, in uh, y- you know, between, well, I mean, the best way to immerse yourself in another culture, I think, is to enjoy the food. I'm, I'm biased. I'm a foodie. I, I love food. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm wondering how do the clients really appreciate what you're doing for them? Because it's very, very valuable. I think they do. And I think, I think that we provide both. Because people are in a foreign country and uh, a lot of times they spend the day out looking around and being a tourist. And then they can come back to the boat. And so if they are able to come back to the boat and and see food that they recognize as, oh, we're in Italy and and here we are, or, oh, when we're in Tahiti a lot of times, I was serving Tahitian Polynesian food, and they loved the fact that that was available and they could have that experience. But there's also the ability to say, you know, tonight I really just feel like a slice of meatloaf. Can I do that too? And so that that helps. Uh, A lot of times when you're traveling, it's eating out all the time is the excitement, but it's also, it gets tiresome. Mm -hmm. And so we're able to do a really fine line of both. We do very um, traditional local cuisines, 
but then we have the ability to make your mom's favorite dish as well and give you a taste of home while we're away. Well, I mean, certainly you have a wonderful life, and I know, you know, there's some members in our audiences listening today thinking, oh my gosh, I would love to to, to have her job, to, you know, <laughs> do what she's doing, but I, I do want to share a story that may actually... Um, not really put anyone off, but give them a, a slap of reality. One of the one of the the crew members that, or not the crew members, but the passengers that you were also charged uh, with uh, the the uh, nutritional care is the dog. And <laughs> you know, I I I take my hat off to you, Victoria. I don't know if I'd have the patience, uh, really, to cater to uh, you know. And I love I love animals, but you know, cooking several meals to see what what uh, what palate uh, pleases this puppy. I think I would have had to draw the line myself. <laughs> and you know, it's funny because I love I love animals too, and through this whole experience, what had happened is. Uh, guest came on board with a smaller dog who actually, come mealtime, would sit at the table, not, sorry, not at the table, on the table, at a place, <laughs> and would get a, a meal served on our china, on our Bulgari dishes, like he was a, he was a guest at the dinner table. And the first night on board, I served salmon, and I was quickly told, yes, uh, King doesn't like salmon. We, he prefers white meat, he, maybe some white meat. <laughs> and so I had to go back and cook a second meal for King to make sure he got what he wanted. And it, it's times like this that as a, as a crew, you are either so dumbfounded or, or laughing so much. I wanted to do this just to see how far it was going to go. And we ended up spending the whole week where I was, I was cooking two, three meals a day until he started to eat. <laughs> Oh, bless you. Apparently he doesn't like egg whites, but he likes ham. I mean, you, you don't know these things. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I can't, I can't uh, criticize the, the passenger too much because I had a cat who preferred crab over lobster. Um, <laughs> well, and why not? <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> so we, we go to those lengths for our animals, but uh, I'm not sure if I would have had him sitting on the dinner table. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you know, well, again, I think those types of stories, as much as a crew or anyone in that situation where you're outside looking in or close looking in, they just add such, they're just funny stories mm-hmm. that, you know, you can get mad or you can think this is crazy, but really at the end of the day, it's just funny. And that's what I tried to do with season is tell these funny stories that we get to see. There are a ton in this book. I'll just uh, share with our audience. <laughs> there's a ton of great stories, but there's also a ton of wonderful, beautiful uh, recipes that that you've collected throughout your travels. Is there? Do you have a favorite recipe in this book, and what is it, and why is that your favorite? <laughs> I'm. Uh, it's not that I'm fickle. It's that I am so easily enthralled with things, and so. Whatever I am making that day or learning about is always my favorite. Mm-hmm. And I get laughed at quite o- often when I say, this is the best thing I've ever tasted once the first time I've made it. And so I like everything in the book as I'm doing it. The caponata, which is from Sicily, actually, uh, which is a stewed Italian vegetables, 
is probably my favorite long-lasting meal. And I'm partially because it's a great recipe that was taught to me by uh, the man in the market, but partially because going to Sicily and meeting the people in Sicily, and this man in particular, he spent all morning with me, walking me around the town, introducing me to things. He took me by the hand and showed me everything in the market and what I should do with it. And that memory is so wonderful to me that every time I make the caponata and taste it, I think I need to travel more. There's just wonderful, wonderful people in the world that mm-hmm. I want to meet. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So would you, would you say that is um, a, a destination that's of particular importance to you or, or one that you, you kind of lean mm. towards or has influenced your style of cooking more? It is. And I, I, I love... Personally, I love vegetables and cuisines of the sun, things that just make you feel like you're warm and outside and loving, and it's summertime. And so Italian foods and French foods and Mediterranean region, the region all through Polynesia, all those, all those sort of lighter sunshine cuisines, are just, that, that's what really takes my heart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, um, I'm, I'm just curious about your, your story, your personal journey. You started off in restaurants, and, and you started, you transitioned to chartered sailing, um, kind of, you know, on a, on a short-term basis, six mm-hmm. months, but you've been doing this for, for 12 years. Mm-hmm. Talk about that transition and, and why you've, uh, you've not returned to, you know, the area that you loved, mm-hmm. restaurants. I was a chef in a restaurant at a very young age in Canada, and, and I loved it. I loved the whole idea of food and cooking for people. But what was happening was I had gone to a private chef school in Canada, and I, had, I only knew food through textbooks. I, we, didn't, we weren't a culinary family, so I didn't grow up eating a lot of very variety or having a, a, a taste for food. And so when I went to chef school and learned, I, I still really didn't know what, the, what I was supposed to be doing. And so I would make paella from Spain, but I'd never been to Spain, and I'd never actually eaten a paella from a Spanish man. So I had no idea if I was doing it correctly or not. And it, that was really starting to bother me as I was moving up in the restaurant and becoming more in charge. I felt like I was being a little bit of a fake, that I didn't know... I could cook, but I didn't know if I was cooking properly. And so I really wanted to start traveling. And <laughs> funny, I came from the mountains in Canada. Oh. We've never seen a boat. I've never been in anything more than a kayak. And so when a girlfriend came into the restaurant one day and said, well, there's these things called yachts, and they float around in this, <laughs> in this thing called the ocean, and you can go and travel, make a living, do it for six months, go for the winter, and come back. And I thought that was great. I'll go, I'll go see something, and then I'll come back, and I'll be a better restaurant chef for it. But then the minute you get down to a yacht or, to, or start traveling, it becomes very hard to go home. <laughs> I, would decide, I went for six months, mm-hmm. and at the end of that six months, the captain uh, said to me, well, the boat's going to Europe. Well, I can't really go home if the boat's going to Europe. Of course not. And then eight months later, well, the boat's going to Tahiti. Well, I'm definitely going to do that. And all of a sudden, 12 years went by. (laughs) There hasn't been a place that I haven't wanted to go to. 
And my list, as much as I've crossed places off my list, my list keeps growing longer of mm-hmm. places that I'd like to go. Mm-hmm. And I love that about traveling. It becomes very addictive. In, indeed, indeed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we can tell you from uh, firsthand experience. Yes. Now, for the, uh, so, so for the aspiring yacht chef out there, what is the career track um, to becoming a chef aboard a chartered yacht? What would you tell that person to do? The best thing to do is to have a firm grasp of, of cooking and of baking. Because one thing that happens in restaurants, you're part of a team, and so you, you're the meat guy, and you, or you're the pastry guy, and you, you focus on pastry. But on a yacht, you're everything. I'm the only one in that galley cooking for 12 crew and 12 guests. So I how to make the bread. I have to know Asian cuisine because somebody really likes Asian cuisine. I have to, I have, to have a really well-rounded um, knowledge. But the second you have that a little bit of knowledge about everything and feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. There are headhunters, just like any career, there are placement people that will place you on a yacht. And if you like to travel, if you have a passport and like to travel, it's a wonderful way to see the world and get paid. Man, <laughs> I, I think perhaps, you know, adding a radio crew to your next sailing would, <laughs> would be a wonderful thing. <laughs> well, we can do a traveling show. There you go. There you go. I'm in. <laughs> Where are you guys headed to next? Uh, we're headed to the Bahamas in two weeks. Okay. And then we'll be headed back to the Mediterranean for the summer. Mm, wonderful. Well, Victoria, I appreciate you uh, sharing these wonderful stories. And, and for those of you who are interested in a behind-the-scenes look at life on a luxury yacht, warts and all, um, and international cuisine, uh, we have a link to Victoria's book, Seasoned, A Chef's Journey with Her Captain, on the show page and on Victoria's guest page from our website, worldfootprints.com. Now, you know, one question I forgot to ask you, how is it um, working with your husband on these? Because, you know, Ian and I work together with the show, and I know how challenging husband and wife uh, collaborations can be, but it's also very rewarding. How is it for you guys? It is, and it's interesting because it's not only working together so 24 hours a day together, but it's also on a 185-foot boat. So there's only a certain amount of space that you can actually escape to. But the strange thing is we're working so much and we're traveling together and we're so enthusiastic about seeing the places. We like being together. <laughs> we enjoy all that comes with spending 24 hours a day together. Mm. So far, no one's gone overboard. thank goodness that's a good thing my dear (laughs) oh well it's 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 been a pleasure victoria and certainly um thank you very much yeah my my pleasure indeed victoria allman again is the author of seasoned a chef's journey with her captain thank you for joining us thank you for sharing this time with us today we always look forward to seeing you here and to connecting with you on our multiple platforms and social networks And you can find links to everything and sign up for our newsletter and travel deal alerts at worldfootprints.com. 
Facebook.com. And certainly, if you're getting ready to travel, you can always offset your carbon footprint and invest in a United Nations approved community project on our carbon offset feature in the travel portal on our website. We're Tanya Nee and Fitzpatrick. We'll see you again next week. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best. The Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. Because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.